And then when the bird flushes, you don't know exactly where they are. You know that they're somewhere upwind of, of your dog. Um, when that bird flushes, what's your first action? To shoot aimlessly into the middle of the covey and miss all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then follow up and, and get it with the second shot. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of honesty. Yeah. I mean, like no matter how, how often I, I chuck or hunt, how, you know, how good I think I am at it. I still, you know, that first shot, like it's really hard for me to like really pick a bird out. It's the second shot that I always get in. And if you're lucky enough to, you know, have a pump or an auto and you, you might have, one or two follow-up shots, depending on the state you live in. Um, but one thing I do find is like, no matter what kind of gun you're shooting, always get ready for that last one that's hanging around or the last couple. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. All right, Matt, here's the first question for you. What would it take? What would somebody have to offer you in terms of material or money to get you to never hunt birds ever again? Oh my God. Um, that's a really hard one. I mean, it would have to be something like a, a private Island in the middle of like some pretty pristine tarpon and bonefish waters where I'd just be so distracted by monster fish that, I wouldn't think about bird hunting, but then I'd still have my dogs that would be running circles and drive me crazy at home. So I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if there's a, there's a dollar value I can put on it. Yeah. And that's, that's how it is for a lot of bird hunters. Um, whether it's waterfowl or upland, you've got a pretty unique background in that you didn't start bird hunting here in the States. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I actually started bird hunting in the UK. I was living over there with my mom and my stepdad. And I started out uh, pretty much in the typical way that people hunt birds in England, which is driven shoots, um, going to one of those fancy estates and standing at a peg. Uh, you know, you draw these peg numbers randomly and you get put in different spots in the field. Uh, beaters and dogs run through the, the woods in front of you and flush all the birds up and over the top. Um, so in terms of like athletic ability, you need pretty much zero, um, which is something that I don't miss about that. Um, 
but it's uh it's a pretty unique experience you know being on these old english estates and uh hunting the mornings and going in for a big roast lunch and then going back out in the afternoon driving around in land rovers and wearing tweed and you know barber uh it's uh it's a pretty pretty cool experience and i'm very fortunate to have experienced it but i've really kind of found uh you know that my real love for bird hunting is is out west and kind of chasing birds in steep country i can't remember which prince or king it was but during the 1870 time frame um there was a member of the english aristocracy who uh, really liked bird hunting and it became the vogue thing to go to the countryside scottish countryside or whatever and and hunt birds in these driven hunts and with that grew the art of building the perfect shotgun and these countries these uh these old shotgun companies like holland and holland and and uh and Hardy and, and some of the others that built these beautiful precision works of art that all came from that being a popular thing to do during that time period and bird hunting and shotgunning specifically would not be anything today. If it weren't for that chapter um, in history where it was the most popular hip thing to do and that you got your roots in bird hunting, you know, kind of within that tradition, I think is really amazing. Yeah, it's really cool to, you know, like, I think my whole life, I've been really fortunate to travel the world, live in different countries, experience different cultures. So I, I like to experience all my activities, my hobbies in different scenarios, and especially ones that are new and make you a little bit uncomfortable, because I think that's how you learn and get better. And, you know, the same can be applied to fly fishing and anything else that I'm interested in. It's, uh, it's a way to grow within, within your hobby or your sport. And, um, you know, those experiences, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, monetary value being applied to things and it's pretty hard to apply monetary value to, to new experiences. And from, from that relatively static form of shotgunning that you grew up with, you're now more interested in the most kinetic and dynamic of all, which is the, the steep country upland bird hunting for species like chucker hungarian partridge um and one of them that's really caught my eye in the last few years being the himalayan snowcock what can you tell me about snowcock hunting well that, that's an interesting one because um you know kind of like chucker they were introduced into the united states um the nevada department of wildlife actually went out and captured um a handful of them out in the himalayas and brought them over in the 70s they release them in a number of uh, mountain ranges across Nevada. And really the only one where they stuck was uh, out in the Ruby Mountains. Um, and it's kind of like uh, when people ask me to describe it, I sort of talk about it like a kind of like a flying mountain goat hunt, you know, like uh, and, and, you know, maybe an archery mountain goat hunt because you have to get within pretty close range. Like you still have to shoot it with a shotgun, you're not allowed to use any form of rifle. Um, but it is essentially a spot and stalk hunt. There's a handful of people that have done it with dogs, but um, these birds don't hold like other birds. Um, so if they get spooked, they just jump off a cliff and, and soar off into the distance and, and that's your chance and you're not getting another crack at them. Uh, whereas other birds, as you know, you know, you can, the bird, the dogs can hold them nice and tight and you can get within range and, um, you know, get, get quite close to have good opportunities but these ones it's a spot and stalk 
you either kind of sit and wait and kind of set a trap for him or, you know, you hope to get lucky and plumb off the edge of a cliff or something. But um, it's just like, it's totally unique. It's, uh, it's pretty much my favorite hunt that I do now um, just because it's so special and takes so much effort to get into um, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's like a true upland hunt, um, just because of the tactics that you use to do it. So when you're talking about setting up a trap for them, what does that mean? Like, are you trying to ambush them in a pass? Um, so what, basically what they do, and this is kind of like the strategy that, um, myself and a couple of friends have figured out, you get up nice and high, uh, while it's still dark. And then the birds wake up and they start calling um, and there'll be different groups across the mountain range. They'll be calling to each other and one group or an individual or a pair will fly down to the nearest water um, and they'll go down in water first thing in the morning. And then generally the other birds in the area can see that and they all kind of congregate by this water source and then feed their way back up to the top in the evening. So what we've tried to figure out is, you know, how to set that trap for them and intersect them as they're climbing back up the mountain feeding, getting ready to roost at night. And it's pretty tough because the distances that they're traveling is, is huge. You know, like you're talking, you can see them across a canyon and it takes you most of the day to, to get over there and get in position because you've got to move quietly. There's loose rocks everywhere. There's very little cover. Um, and we spook birds from, you know, a, a quarter mile plus away. So it, it's slow moving and it's very tedious. Um, but we've gotten some pretty cool opportunities by kind of, as I, I call it, setting a trap for them. Are optics a big part of this hunt? A hundred percent. Like you could not do it without the optics. Um, you know, you can hear them calling and it, it'll take you a long time to find them. Their camouflage is excellent. Um, they're obviously way smaller than big game animals, so they're very hard to see. Um, and yeah, it's a hundred percent necessity in this one. Interesting, man. I would ground sluice the heck out of a bird under those conditions. That, that's the way to do it. I, I got my first one ground sluicing it. Um, I heard it calling and I kind of climbed up on a ridge, snuck up on it. And, uh, I actually like shot it through a tree because I couldn't get any closer without getting around and spooking it off the edge of this cliff. So I just shot it through the tree and the kind of spray and prey technique and managed to knock it down. And then the second year I got lucky and, uh, and I actually got one up in the air and shot one on the wing. So wow. my next goal, whether it's uh, whether it's a smart idea or not, I'd love to shoot one over a dog, but you know, it's, it's kind of hard to find the time to really dedicate to that. Um, it's a pretty time consuming hunt in terms of scouting and tactics and setting up and that kind of thing. But I would love to get one over my dog. That's the dream. We kind of take it for granted, but a lot of the upland birds that we hunt are non-native introduced species. So the, the Hungarian partridge, uh, no real myth or, you know, it's, it's not hard to guess where that one came from. Um, the, 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 the pheasant, right. That's a, that's a Chinese bird. Uh, the chucker is the national bird of Iraq. They're not from around here either. Um, a lot of these, these bird species that, that we have as now regulated game species, they're, they're not from this neck of the woods. So as far as native upland bird species, we don't have a heck of a lot, do we? No. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Cause you think, uh, 
you think about all the bird hunters across the U.S. and you know pheasant hunting's got to be up there in, in the most popular of all, all of them. And you know there's there's organizations like Pheasants Forever that are created to preserve a non-native bird. Um, so it, it's pretty wild when you think about it. And you know Chuckers above and beyond my favorite, and they're not from around here. So I think we're really lucky that um, you know back in the time they were kind of forward thinking in a way where, where they really wanted to create opportunities for sportsmen and, you know, the taxpayers were paying it. And, you know, I just don't see that really happening ever again. And, uh, you know, there's definitely opportunities. Like I'd love to see Snowcock moved over to the Sierras and, you know, Ptarmigan moved around a bit more um, just to create those opportunities. But I just don't see it happening anymore with the way, you know, bi biologists work and funding works and politics and, all of that, it just doesn't seem like it would ever happen again. Yeah. Well, anything that has happened once can happen again. Um, and we, we all know that history repeats itself, but we tend to think of that in terms of stuff that's like happened a long time ago, um, not stuff that's happening right now, but the, the things that are happening right now, or even, you know, 50 years ago, like the introduction of the Himalayan snowcock, uh, that, that can happen again. We could get to that place where we realize, hey, the species that are here aren't doing well or they're completely gone or we have this habitat that nothing is in. So let's give it a try. Let's put something in here and see if it works. It, it's also the same with big game species in a lot of areas. You know, whitetail are not native to the area that I live in. Mountain goats are not native to the area that I live in. Um, we've got all kinds of sheep species and all kinds of places that they're not native. And even though they, they might be native to a different part of the lower 48, you know, in the, in the regions that they're now occupying, they're new. They're, they're non-native introduced species, whether you want to call them invasive or not is largely academic and really not the, the subject that I wanted to get into here, but it, it is really interesting. And I think that we need to keep an open mind about that stuff because they can be a really healthy contributor to an ecosystem. And then there's a tremendous recreational value that can come along with that as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, you, you do mention, uh, or you did mention about them putting species in places where they're not competing with something else. And I think that's just like the perfect environment for it, you know, just something where a certain species would thrive and there's nothing there that they're going to compete with. Um, I mean, that's the perfect opportunity. And you kind of see that with the snowcock and some of the ptarmigan when, you know, there's not a lot up, up that high that they compete with. So it's, it's pretty cool to have those opportunities. Last year, you got to go chucker hunting in Hell's Canyon, which is the, the country that I live in. And it's, it's the steepest ground in North America. Uh, I hate chuckers very much. And I think a lot of the people that love chuckers hate them too, or hate themselves. It is a bird that will absolutely cripple the type of person who's you know tough enough or dumb enough to go after him what did you think of that hunt uh i mean it, it was fantastic it, it wasn't my first time in hell's canyon but it was the first time that i floated through the canyon and got to got to hit some areas that are inaccessible by by people coming in on foot or by truck and, you know, going through there and seeing, you know, all the wildlife outside of Chucker. I mean, the Chucker was just like, you know, that wasn't even the, uh, 
the really exciting thing for me. It was going through and fishing for salmon and seeing bighorn sheep and bear and, you know, big muleys. And I mean, it was just, it was the most spectacular trip ever. And I was really fortunate to be invited on it. It was a, a really bougie camping trip and not something that I could afford otherwise. So uh, it was fantastic. I would recommend it to anybody. Um, it's probably one of my favorite places in the world. I would not recommend it to anybody. If you are the type of guy or gal that goes up two flights of stairs and has to, you know, stop and take a little breather, this is the wrong place for you. You're going to have a bad time. Chucker hunting down there can be such a cool time if you catch them down low or on the benches or something like that. But the thing that I've found about chuckers is that they're really good about hiking uphill and flying downhill. So what can often happen is the birds will stay ahead of you out of range and out of range of, of your dog. Cause you got to keep your dog close enough to be reasonable to you. So the dog is limited by, by my capabilities and the chuckers stay ahead of both of you and they take you farther and farther and farther up the hill. And pretty soon you've climbed, you know, 4,000 vertical feet, which is not an exaggeration. And they get to the top and they have no place else to go. So before you get there, they jump off and fly to the bottom. And it is heartbreaking. It is devastating to see something like that happen. And uh, it takes a special type of person who, who enjoys that type of pain and frustration. And you're one of them. Yeah. It's, it's funny because it is brutal. It's, it's horrible. And uh, like, I, I actually don't hate Chucker. Like I have a really strong respect for them and I think they're incredible animals, but it's more like I, maybe I have a hate for myself. Um, <laughs> I kind of like, I, I grew up as an athlete and, and played sports pretty competitively. So I have this competitive nature. And what's weird is like, uh, I'm very competitive when I Chucker hunt, but I'm competitive with myself. Like every time I have like doubts or pain, I love the pressure that it puts on me to kind of overcome it and just keep going. And that's why I love it so much. Like it's really about it, it being a physical challenge and endurance and the pain and suffering that you go through. And then the feeling you get when you drop the tailgate at the end of the day and sit on it and crack a cold one and, you know, hopefully line up a few birds on there. It's uh, it's pretty hard to beat. So with this type of hunting, whether it's chucker or snowcock or something like that, you may have to work all day long, extremely hard, and then get one or two shots. That, that type of shooting is extremely high pressure because you're fatigued when you do it. You know, the footing is not going to be perfect. It's not like you're standing out there on a trap range. So how do you prepare yourself mentally to get the most out of that, that fleeting, you know, two second opportunity to capitalize on, on the investment that you've put in, in terms of labor and effort and, you know, trying to make sure that your dog isn't disappointed in you. Um, I mean, it, there's definitely no perfect way to do it because every single time you shoot at a chucker for the most part, there's something working against you. And it's like, you know, the terrain, the angles, the, the blood pumping, the lactic acid in, in your legs, whatever it is. I mean, there's always something working against you. And that that's what makes it exciting for me. And that every situation is so different and so challenging. I think like one technique that I kind of do is like, 
I get I get pretty amped up when the dog goes on point. Like I am super excited and I haul ass to it. Like I know my dogs can hold hold birds for a long time, or at least one of them. I'm super confident. The puppy's still learning, but I I just haul ass every time. And uh, you know, the dog may be 200 yards away and I'll near sprint up the mountain until I get to those last few yards. And when I get to those last few yards, that's when I I slow down assess the situation and really try and catch my breath. But either way, your legs are burning, your temples are pounding and like, you know, there's not much you can do about it, but I just try and use that last second as you're coming in on the dog to like really slow down and try and catch your breath. And then when the bird flushes, you don't know exactly where they are. You know that they're somewhere upwind of, of your dog. Um, when that bird flushes, what's your first action? to shoot aimlessly into the middle of the covey and miss all of them <laughs> and then follow up and, and get it with the second shot. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of honesty. Yeah. I mean, like no matter how, how often I, I chuck or hunt, how, you know, how good I think I am at it. I still, you know, that first shot, like it's really hard for me to like really pick a bird out. It's the second shot that I always get in and, if you're lucky enough to, you know, have a pump or an auto and you, you might have one or two follow-up shots, depending on the state you live in. Um, but one thing I do find is like, no matter what kind of gun you're shooting, always get ready for that last one that's hanging around or the last couple, because all the birds will get up and there'll be that one or two that hesitate and they're like, not quite sure if they should get up or not. So that's always like, you know, you, you shoot a bird and you're watching the dogs go after it or, you're watching them fly across the canyon after you miss them and you kind of like switch off for a second and without fail, the second you switch off that last bird gets up and it's right at your feet and it's the easiest shot in the world. So I've learned to like always be ready for that last one because it happens more often than not. That's a really good call. It's a good call in any hunting scenario. And I don't care whether it's archery, rifle, shotgun, after you shoot, reload, like reload because you don't fully know what has just occurred yet. There's not enough time for you to figure out everything that, that just happened. Um, and I've absolutely pillowcased birds before and thought that it was completely over with and they've gotten back up again and either ran off or somehow found their wings and, and flown away again. Uh, if I would have reloaded in those scenarios, then, then it would have been better. Same, same thing with all kinds of hunting, just, reload every time. Um, very, very important. Uh, I had a shotgun season back in 2014 when I first got out of the Marine Corps that was just awful. And it was the same thing you're describing where my first round in the gun might as well have been a blank. Like I just had to rip off that first shot and get it over with um, before I could start actually hitting birds, I needed, needed to miss once. And then I could actually get in the game and start shooting. I think that a lot of that was that I hadn't got to really hunt for the last five years in the Marines. You know, there's never been a time in my life where I did so little shooting as when I was in the military. And I think that's a big misconception that civilians have about the military is that they think that we're out there shooting all the time that we have open access to ammunition and to ranges and to firearms, not at all the case. Like you get to shoot once a year and you're so busy with everything else. That the reality is you're, you're just not able to practice or shoot very much. 
so that that was a, a a dark time in my shotgunning life but fortunately i've gotten out of that phase a little bit we'll see what happens this year though yeah i mean it, it's pretty easy to get caught up in that trap of just you know wasting the first shot and i think especially early season or you know the first first flush of the day like so many people do it whether they admit it or not it's uh you know you're excited you're tired you're you know you're not fully fully focused and fully sharp most of the time so it happens to everybody and uh i still do it all the time so i have no shame in it what i did to break myself of it was i i shoot a semi-auto but uh i just put one shell in and i was like okay we're gonna treat it like like i'm back as a kid in my single shot days because that's what i learned with and i think that's a great way to teach kids just give them one shot and make sure that they make that one count and just went back to my roots and you know that made me be patient and I wasn't just going to try and, and get a double or a triple. I wasn't going to try and shoot as fast as possible. I was going to take the best possible shot and hit at least one bird. Um, and that's advice that I end up giving people, no matter how many shells they have in their, in their guns. Like the goal is to hit at least one. Don't go into this thing, trying, trying to get a triple every time. And if they can get that, that one shot really well, then they've at least got victory in the bag. Uh, and they can build off that and then start building into making multiple good shots. Yeah. And I think that's fan, a fantastic way to go about it. And, you know, the, the advice that I like to give people when uh, they come out for the first time is when the birds get up, pick one and watch it and just really focus on it. And, you know, hopefully it's in range, the one that you, you pick and it's a good shot, but, uh, you know, I, I break my, my rules all the time. And, um, but I think that's a, a great strategy and like coupled with that great piece of advice to only pick out one bird and focus on it. Um, I think that that'll set people off in the right direction for sure. Now you worked for, for decked as you, as your day job, were you part of making that, that shotgun holder that goes in the drawer system? No, I, I wasn't actually, they started developing that before I came in. Um, and, and I'm stoked about it because, uh, I generally just, uh, had a layer of foam at the bottom of my drawer and I just threw all my guns in there and called it a day and it worked, but, uh, the peacekeeper is a, a really nice bit of kit. If you have, have a deck drawer system already, like, uh, I've put shotguns in there and driven across miles and miles of gravel roads and, and they don't move. So it's a nice peace of mind to have it in there and help stay organized. One of the things that has really blown my mind about the drawer system and I've had it, what's it been three years now, something like that. I can't remember is before you, you even started with the company, there's still not dust in mine. And I live almost exclusively on dirt roads and every aspect of my vehicle is covered in mud and dust all the time. But um, it's a safe, clean place to keep a gun. And since my tailgate locks, I honestly think it's safer than keeping it in the cab because, you know, it would take somebody, a bunch of impact wrenches and a bunch of time and some knowledge about the system to be able to even think about tearing into that thing. Whereas if a gun's in, inside my cab, they could just break a window and, and get to it. So I, I love that, you know, especially during waterfowl season, man, I can keep all my shotguns, all my ammo, my call lanyard, everything right there, clean, organized, ready to go. And uh, clean and organized isn't a normal occurrence in my life. Usually it's dirty and chaotic. So that's that's been a powerful tool. I appreciate that very much. 
Yeah, it's funny. Like we get met with a lot, a lot of skepticism about, you know, being weatherproof and dustproof and all that. And I, I always say we're like 100% weatherproof and 99% dustproof because every once in a while somebody has a little bit of an issue. But, you know, like you said, like I, I was living in Nevada for three years and I had my system all three years. And I don't know how many miles I did in the dusty roads in Nevada every year, but, you know, hundreds and hundreds and no dust ever got inside. Um, you know, I, I'd leave my my shotguns in there all through hunting season. Um, you lock the drawer, you lock the tailgate behind it and super secure. I'd have snow sitting on the, on the deck, uh, freeze thaw, you know, over and over again and nothing. So, you know, I, I felt this way before I started with the company, I thought it was a fantastic product and I was actually brought on as an ambassador myself. So, um, I've just been a huge fan of it for a long time. And for people like you and I, I mean, it's, it's a perfect solution. No, that's incredible. I use it for um, everything. I use it for everything. I love it. And uh, I just packed, um, I haven't ran that much weight on top of it. I know it can hold a lot of weight, like a pallet of goods, but uh, I just went to Lewiston the other day and brought my motorcycle down there. Cause because the motorcycle gets 55 miles per gallon and my truck does not and gas isn't free these days, folks. So I'm getting that bike back in order. And, you know, my motorcycle's like 600 pounds with all the kit on it and yeah, just run it up on top of the deck, strap it down, move on with my life. It's pretty nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, um, you know, it's technically rated to 2000 pounds. So yeah. I think you got room for two more bikes there. If you <laughs> <laughs> That's the spirit. Oh man, that'll get me in trouble. So what's your hunting season looking like this year? Are you going to do any big game stuff or are you just going to um, charge up mountains and canyons and, and hunt the feathered friends? Um, yeah, I did actually draw a pronghorn tag in Wyoming. Um, so I'm super excited about that. I've only chased them once and it was when I accidentally ticked the archery box on my application in Nevada oh. and had never shot a bow before. So oh. that hunt was very difficult. I had some close calls. I learned a lot. Um, and so I'm excited to get back after him with a rifle. And then otherwise it's just, uh, you know, business as usual. Uh, I'm going to do the snowcock hunt again. I'd like to do that same stretch of hell's Canyon, but actually do a through hike from the, from the top to the bottom, you know, the same section that I, I floated um, just because one, I can't afford to do that fancy float trip again. And two, uh, like I said, I, I like pain and suffering and it sounds pretty miserable to through hike that. So those are kind of the plans for now. Yeah. What's your poison Ivy plan on that? Uh, stay high and avoid it. Okay. Because I get, I get hit really hard with it. So I couldn't, I made it out of it last year and got nothing because yeah. the dogs were going through it. I was going through it. And yeah, as you know, it's, it's pretty gnarly out there. Oh, it's terrible. You know, that stuff didn't used to be there at all. When, uh, before Hell's Canyon was, was taken during the Carter administration, um, with eminent domain and, and all the homesteaders were still down there. There was a lot of domestic sheep that were grazed in the Canyon and there was no, no poison whatsoever no poison ivy, oak, sumac, none of that. And that's been, along with a lot of other weeds, a product that has come in since all of the grazing livestock and the, and the homesteaders that lived there were removed from the canyons. Wow, that's really interesting. 
it was pretty cool to go through the canyon and see some of those old homesteads and some apple trees along there. And it's, uh, it's cool to see that bit of history. Yeah, no, there, there are some hard people, hard people, very, very much respect those that, uh, that figured out how to make it down there. And they were the ones that were sort of late to the party as far as, uh, homesteaders, because everything that was convenient to, you know, put a farm on or, or create some grazing land, uh, that was already taken. So it was like from 1900 on that people were sort of forced to look into the canyons for, for places to homestead and how they eked out a living down there and, you know, built, built homes out of rock and, and what lumber they could find amongst all the rattlesnakes and, and weather and climate. Oh my gosh. They're just, they're amazing humans. It's pretty cool. I would love to have some of those guys come back from dead and chuck and hunt with me. They'd probably put me to shame. Well, they did it a little bit different. So my granddad grew up down there and uh, he was one of the early uh, jet boat pilots on the river. And the first power boat that I operated in the Canyon was actually his first, one of his first boats. Um, it was the, the first ever welded aluminum uh, boat and it was made in 1958 by, by uh, Norm Riddle in Lewiston, Idaho. It was a 22 foot sled and he had a plywood deck on it. And when I got the boat and was starting to kind of try to breathe some life back into it and refit things a little, uh, I pulled up that decking and it was completely full of 12 gauge shotgun shells. And I asked my dad, I was like, was Papa Doug shooting birds from the boat? And uh, he's like, I don't think they shot birds from not the boat. And it actually wasn't <laughs> until quite a bit later, um, I think maybe even in the 90s, that they made it illegal to shoot um, chuckers from boats. So that was just the norm down there. And, and people who hunted chuckers hunted them from boats um, from the river. So the, the getting out and tromping around thing was new. So I think that if, if you could grab those old timers now, which there's still a few around that, that grew up in the Canyon and ask them to, to go hike around to chucker hunt, they might look at you a little funny. Yeah. Well, I, I don't blame them. It sounds pretty lush uh, driving the boat back and forth and, knocking them <laughs> off the rocks when they come down for water <laughs> yeah well what is the season on the himalayan snowcock it goes from september 1st to the end of november i believe okay um and most people go out that first kind of opening weekend that's when it's you know super i wouldn't say super busy because there's a lot of country there but it's definitely busy um a lot of people are, are trying to do it. It's, you know, a very coveted bird for, for those that want to try and shoot all of the birds in, in North America. It's, it's the hardest without a doubt. Um, so there's a lot of people trying and uh, October is probably a pretty nice time to go. If the weather stays good, you know, it cools down a bit. Um, and, you know, like if you're looking to mount a bird, like at least you're getting a bit more plumage to work with and November would be tough, you know, like it, you're up at 10 to 12,000 feet up there. And obviously it gets pretty chilly and, um, you know, and then if you get snow, I mean, uh, the game's going to change big time. So I haven't actually hunted them with any fresh snow around. I've always gone the sort of opening week. Um, but I would like to go kind of towards the end of October and just have it be a little colder because I've been up there on some really hot days and days where there's uh, smoke coming from various fires in the great basin region. And that definitely, 
takes a toll on your lungs after a while. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you have to draw that tag or is it over the counter? It's over the counter. You have to apply for a kind of free permit, which I think they use just to, you know, get, get an idea of how many people are going up and getting after them. Um, and every year, like I kind of hear of a few people getting it, but the, the odds of success in that hunt are very, very low. Like I'd say below 5%. Uh, I've met people in and around Nevada that have chased them for 20 years and never gotten one. So it's definitely challenging. Um, unfortunately, like one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of people are doing it because it's kind of like a bucket list hunt, but not doing all the research that you really need to do it. And I was up there one time and somebody took a shot at an eagle that was riding the thermals. Um, And they actually, when I confronted them, they actually said that they were 100% certain it was a snowcock. Another example, we got back down from uh, from our hunt. Um, My friends and I were successful, so we bailed out of there after a couple of days get down to the trailhead and uh, there was another truck park there. And these guys were, were crushing a bunch of beers and feeling pretty good about themselves. And we started talking to them and uh, they were like, yeah, we just drove, drove up here and uh, we got our birds right away. Like everyone said it was so difficult. And uh, we, we shot the snowcock on our first day. And so we kind of asked them some more details about it. And one of them said he shot it out of a tree. And so we, we got a little skeptical about that. Um, and then we wanted ask them if uh, the birds had spurs on them just to see if they got, you know, first year birds or mature birds. And then uh, you can probably guess what they pulled out of the cooler and showed us. It was uh, a couple blue grouse. <laughs> so uh, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, uh, do you want to tell them? Do you want to tell them? Cause we, we didn't really want to ruin their party, but uh yeah, unfortunately, they thought that the, the blue grouse were snowcock as well. So um, it's a tough one. You know, there's not a lot of research out there on the Internet to, to really read about them. It's kind of a mysterious bird. And uh, um, but, you know, like if you're if you're going out hunting, you don't need to know what, what your quarry is and, you know, make sure you're working within the legal boundaries of, of the regulation. So, yeah. Can you point people who are interested in the direction of a good resource to learn more? Um, you know, I've done a couple podcasts, like purely on it. Um, the Upchucker podcast, my friend, Travis Warren, um, we've, he's my, my hunting partner whenever I do it. So we've talked pretty extensively on there about it. Um, calling the end biologists in Elko would probably be a good move. Um, you know, a lot of times they're also looking for information. So we, we have shared information that we've found with them just because it's you know it's probably not a great use of resources for them to go up there and count birds and see where they are because you know part of that section of the ruby mountains is a wilderness and you can't fly helicopters there so you really got to get out and go on foot um some bird watching forums have some information that i found in the past um it's a really coveted bird for watchers i mean people come from all over the country to go up there and see them um, so yeah, I, I, you just got to kind of like troll through the internet and podcasts and, uh, and do your best to find them. It's really like the, the hard thing is once, once you get up there, um, you know, doing a scouting trip would be like, my recommendation is get up there, you know, a month before the season, if it's doable and then 
do the scouting trip, um, try and cover as much ground as you can stop stopping and listening every morning. Um, and then like really nailing down the, uh, the location that you want to hunt during the season, because, you know, it's tough and you don't get many, if any opportunities. So you really want to maximize it. If, if that opportunity comes right on, man. Well, I think that it's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool hunt. It's a neat thing. And if you're interested in that high altitude, high angle type hunt that we get with mule deer or sheep or mountain goats, and you don't want to spend all the money, or, or maybe you're not even interested in hunting big game, then you can get all of those same elements, the, the hiking, the camping, the glassing, the spot and stock. You can get all of that and you're doing it with a shotgun and, and maybe a dog. If, if you're an absolute lunatic, like Matt here is. <laughs> yeah. I haven't actually brought my dog up there yet. So I'm, I'm not quite that crazy, but, um, it's definitely on the list. It's just, uh, you'd have to have a pretty kind of steady dog that's, you know, used to some steep terrain and, um, you know, cause there's, there's cliff faces there that drop hundreds and hundreds of feet and the dog could run off that pretty easily. Yeah. But then also like the problem is, is, uh, it being early season, um, you know, most dogs, their pads are not quite conditioned yet. Um, and if you go up there with a dog that's pads aren't conditioned, I mean, they, they're going to be gone in a day. Uh, yeah. it's all kind of granite up there and it's going to, it's going to shred the dog. So, that's something that a lot of people overlook, you know, even with just chucker hunting, um, the, the wear and tear on the dogs, like you've really got to condition their, their pads to be ready for that kind of terrain. Yeah, for sure. Where can people follow along with, with what you're doing? Mostly on Instagram. That's kind of like the only platform that I'm super active at on, um, you know, my, my handle there is just Matt Harding. Uh, it's, uh, got all my photography on it uh people can reach out to me if they have questions on birds dogs snowcock whatever else how to endure pain and suffering um i'm a pretty open book and uh you know i'll answer any any questions that people throw at me beautiful photography by the way thank you it's a work in progress but uh i i do love it and it's uh it's nice to have those memories from all the hunts for sure yeah, you've you've got a sharp eye for it. It's something that I I enjoy and look forward to is is when you're posting those photos because they they just are tremendous. And I think more than just showing imagery that kind of captures what you're looking at, I feel like you're doing a, a good job of indicating that there's a bigger story there. And that's something that's very difficult to do with uh, the button on the top right of a camera. Yeah, I, I definitely try and do that more and more, you know, I think like one of the things that a lot of people get drawn into, uh, when they're doing hunting related photography is it's all about the glory shot or the tailgate or the rack or whatever it is. And I feel like there's so much more to hunting, you know, that's just a minuscule part. And I've actually stopped doing the tailgate shots. Cause I just, uh, I, I think there's more to the story and other things that I want to show. So I kind of hope hunting photography goes that way as a whole, because I don't really like to see, you know, people holding up racks and tailgates full of birds as much as I like to see, you know, all the components that kind of make that. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's an evolution within sort of your, your trajectory as a hunter as well, because there's a, 
there may have been a time in your life where it was really intriguing to you to, to see somebody else's success and the way you define that success is different from how it is now. And it's totally, it's totally okay and normal for you to, you know, get a limit of birds and want to take a picture on your tailgate with your dog. Like I'm not trying to take any of that away from it, but it's also very interesting to try to take a photo that indicates that there's much, much more going on because there really is. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I totally used to only post tailgate photos, you know, like I, I kind of loved, uh, the bragging rights or whatever. It's like, Oh, look, I shot a limited chucker. It was a great day. And, but you know, apart from the fact that I work for Dex, like I don't really want to see the tailgate of somebody's truck, you know, like it's all about the story and the, the dogs and the, you know, the sweat and the guns and the landscape and the other wildlife. Like that's, that's what makes it for me. So that's what I focus on. And that's what I like to see from other people because you know, the whole story is better than just the end of the story. Yeah. I like that. Well, sir, this is the end of the story for this podcast episode. I appreciate your time very much. Yeah. And if you decide that you'd like a, a less painful way to, to go into Hell's Canyon, let me know and we can rip the jet boat up there. Yeah. We're, we'll be in touch for sure. I'll be on your way sometime <laughs> this season. Okay. Sounds good. I'm working on building a house this year, which is something that I know nothing about. And I love that. It's exciting. Uh, everything is a new challenge and there's lots of challenges that pop up. The other day we we're laying out rebar and getting ready to pour concrete for the foundation of the shop that's going to be next to the house. And one of the guys that was there that was helping one of the construction crewmen, I looked over and he had a Stanley thermos sitting on the end of the trailer. I said, how do you like that thing? And he goes, oh, I love it. I've had it for a decade. Like, you know, if you find any environment where people are out there working hard, working hard with their hands outside, no matter the conditions, you're probably going to see a Stanley product there. It's something that just goes with that blue collar labor because that's what this product is doing. It is out there working just as hard as you are. It's going to be there as long as you are. It's going to be there after you're done. It's something that, that I feel passionate about with every piece of gear that I take either into the woods or into the workplace, like it's got to be able to outwork me. And I work really hard myself. If you are also a hard worker, and I'm sure that you are, then you could probably appreciate the same type of gear. If you go to stanley1913.com and you use the discount code six ranch, that's the number six and the word ranch, you can get 25% off just about any of their products. And I encourage you to do that. They're a great supporter of this show and a great supporter of this audience. Again, I love you guys. And I just want to pass this, uh, this discount and the savings on to you. If you want something from Stanley, I encourage you to get it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.